welcome to episode 295 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Tony, and today we have a very special joint episode. Welcome back, people with and without hair. We are glad to have you here. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Justin, as usual. Uh, that is that continues to be my name every episode. Uh, and I am joined by, of course, my long flowing haired Presbyterian brother. Blake, how are you, my friend? It's good, man. It's a good day. I uh, We were doing some Father's Day content uh, at work today. And so I had the opportunity to crack out some dad jokes. Nice. And one this of my coworkers, who's also a PCA man, who's a deacon, he walks in from the other side of the office, opens the door, walks up in front of the camera while someone else is talking with a book of dad jokes and just starts reading them off with a deadpan. And I was like, you know, if I had the queued up, the thing queued up, I'd play there. There goes my hero. But, you know, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, what about you, buddy? How you doing? You know, I have been better, but I've also been worse. Wow. So <laughs> I am about as average as they come. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing well, uh, all things considered. Uh, uh, some exciting times at work. Um, you know, wedding planning. That's mm. exciting. All that fun stuff, you know. A lot of travel uh, with today's gas prices. It's just, I'm pleased. I'm just really happy about that. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> but other than that, uh, but we are, we are not alone tonight, are we? No. Like we are, we are not I feel just like somebody's watching pair. us. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Guys, we are joined by none other than the Tony Arsenal of the Reformed Brotherhood. Brother, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Peachy. 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 Well, we learned you're average. <laughs> the average. So. I am average. She is very, very <laughs> Average. Neither hot nor cold. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and neither hot nor cold is this dad joke. That's it's probably a little offensive, but here we go. Um, why did uh, why did the blind woman fall down the well? Why, Blake? Because she couldn't see that well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, hold on. We missed Where's it. Where's the sound effects? Wait, 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 wait. wait. We got it. We got it. There, there we go. Is. There we go. There we go. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hit myself with one more because that was exceptionally bad. But I stole that. That was a that was a commandeered, a pirated uh, dad joke. Yeah. You wouldn't steal a joke. Anyways, uh, before we get into our topic tonight, we have a sample that was provided for us by Tony. Uh, Tony actually gave this to me in a church parking lot in upstate New York about <laughs> a year ago. suspicious about that. No, it's, it's true. In like a, like a brown paper bag. Yeah, it was good. And then we proceeded to sit in there and listen to uh, Dr. Adonis Vidu talk about inseparable operations and just That's true. blow some minds. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was good. But uh, Tony, tell us. I think you said you pulled some notes up. I, I have no notes other than it's it's 90 proof or 45% alcohol by volume. And uh, it's from uh, Vermont Distilling or Vermont Spirits. Yeah. So this this is a little local distillery kind of near me. Just I live on the uh, border of Vermont and New Hampshire. And this Vermont Distillery um, or Vermont Spirits makes everything with maple syrup, which is a very New England uh, yeah, thing to do. <laughs> Holy so uh, here's the tasting notes. It's the number 14 bourbon whiskey. It says rich amber color, semi-sweet aromas of maple that are light on the nose. 
a light-bodied and silky whiskey, well-balanced with notes of cherry vanilla on the mid-palate and touches of honey oak, honey, honeyed oaky spice and cloves. A last touch of maple lends to a soft and elegant finish. Whoa. So I've had this before. It's very good. It's, it's one of my favorites that they put together. They have some that are a little... A little dicey, but this one's pretty good. I love it. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I like bourbon, and I used to, when I lived in the Adirondacks, um, I would go to this little maple shack where they would, like, make the maple, and they'd stow it there, and you would just, like, write down in the little booklet what you took and leave cash. And I asked him about it one day. I was like, do you ever, do people ever steal? They're like, not really. And it's never it's never been a problem. Like, it's not an issue that, that we need to have somebody here. And it's open 24-7. So, like, they make more, they benefit more by people, like, leaving and hiking and see the open sign and walk into the shack and just put cash in. Um, <laughs> it's very so, Adirondack. Yeah, so I love I love maple and I, and I enjoy bourbon. So this is a, this is a win. A treat, if Oof. you will. I did that wrong. I got a big whiff of ethanol first because I was uh, And just, uh, just so everybody sees, it came in these little maple leaf-shaped... Flasks, yeah, so good. super good, beautiful, love it. Beautiful. Yeah, these have been sitting. These have been sitting with us for like a year because you gave this to me back yeah. at ETS, and we've been meaning to get together, and and now we finally have a, a reason, a reason for the season. It's true, uh, it's as true. opposed the season to season of uh, summer. Yeah, that's the most isn't the reason for that season just the angle of the Earth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, midwinter, no reason. Uh, holiday season, as you and Jesse like to say about. Uh, yeah, there you go. That, that one holiday that. That happens if if you're a covenanter. I'm sorry, cover your ears. But we're talking about Christmas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, anyhow, yeah, this smells good. I do. I do smell maple. I smell a little butterscotch. Um, yeah. And uh, those are both things that I like. So <laughs> I'm just going to say, cheers. Let's let's taste it and uh, get into the substance uh, of our podcast. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, there's there's definitely the. It's not as as syrupy as I anticipated. No, it's uh, not syrupy at all. No, uh, but it, it definitely has an added layer of sweetness with the uh, with the bourbon. I mean, you do get kind of like a vanilla maple, um, toffee butterscotch type flavor on the palate. Yeah, but it's not overwhelming. It's not as sweet as I expected. Yeah, and also that um, for ninety proof, that's much more warming. On the finish yeah. than I was anticipating, which is pretty cool. I like that. I yeah. like that. Simple, easy, tasty. Yeah. It's not bad. As usual, I have nothing to add because I'm an uninitiated Philistine with this stuff, but <laughs> I like it. It's delicious. I would drink a whole glass of this. It's good. It's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what we're going to do through the duration of this episode. Uh, but before we do, we'll. Um, I, I would say we're going to set the joking aside, but I can guarantee there will be some shenanigans further on. However, uh, as we as we shift out of our kind of housekeeping introductory stuff uh, into the main episode, I'm just going to open us with some prayer from the Valley of Vision. This is, uh, I forget which edition this is, but it's page 46, and the prayer is titled Love to Jesus. So pray with us as we prepare our hearts to reflect on the doctrine of Christ. Lord Jesus, if I love thee, my soul shall seek thee. But can I seek thee unless my love to thee is kept alive to this end? Do I love thee because thou art good, and canst alone do me good? It is fitting thou shouldest not regard me, for I am vile and selfish, yet I seek thee. And when I find thee, there is no wrath to devour me. 
but only sweet love. Thou dost stand as a rock between the scorching sun and my soul, and I live under the cool lee side as one elect. When my mind acts without thee, it spins nothing but deceit and delusion. When my affections act without thee, nothing is seen but dead works. Oh, how I need to abide Oh, how I need thee to abide in me, for I have no natural eyes to see thee, but I live by faith in one whose face to me is brighter than a thousand suns. When I see that all sin is in me, all shame belongs to me, let me know that all is good in thee, all glory is thine. Keep me from the error of thinking thou dost appear gloriously when some strange light fills my heart as if that were the glorious activity of grace. But let me see that the truest revelation of thyself is when thou dost eclipse all my personal glory and all the honor and pleasure and good of this world. The sun breaks out in glory when he shows himself as one who outshines all creation, makes men poor in spirit and helps them to find their good in him. Grant that I may distrust myself to see my all in thee. Amen. Amen. Are you guys hearing Amen. that audio, or is that just in Amen. my headphones? Uh, which audio is it? Okay, it's just in my head. That like, weird cutting out sound, or was that just in my headphones? Like, I think it's just in your head. It's just yeah. in my head. It's not your headphones, <laughs> it's just your head. Aww. <laughs> you need more of that silky, smooth, light-bodied whiskey that you're drinking. That's it, that's it. Uh, this is the way. And uh, speaking of the way, we're going to continue talking about Christology. And over on Reformed Brotherhood, Tony and Jesse just started. Um, and obviously, a couple weeks ago, we spoke about Chalcedon. We've been working through the Confessions, particularly Chapter 8 of the Mediator. Um, we didn't call each other and plan that, by the way. That just kinda, No, it just kind of happened. It's true. Well, it and provident. also, Providence. as I was listening to PresbyCast this past week, um, they uh, maybe it was two weeks ago, the episode, but they had an episode on Westminster Confession, uh, Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. So it's kind of, it, it's going around, you know. Tis the uh, season. And uh, and our boys, our Reformed Baptist boys, um, uh, Richard Barcelos, Sam Renahan, Matthew Barrett, James Dolezal, were all at a conference this weekend, and I'm very excited to get caught up on some of that good uh, classical theism yeah. um, from, from yeah, those didn't, brothers. Didn't you say, uh, you know, who, who called this uh, conference of esteemed distilling theology guests? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, I, I did say that. And, I didn't uh, get my invitation. What's going yeah. on? What's going on? Here? I feel like I, this, I think I'm, I've been on the show more than anyone else besides uh, Eric, right? Eric, uh, Sam, I, I Sam is so. two, Carl is twice. I think you're right. I think. I yeah, think, this uh, is what three. This is number yeah. three. I figure yeah. if I come on the show enough, it just becomes my show. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's my my way of playing podcast Pokemon. I've got to got to catch them all. Are you sure about that? <laughs> well, on that note. Um, <laughs> Uh, tonight, we wanted to get together and talk about Christology in application. And Tony has, I mean, you can speak to it a little bit more, um, yep. but Tony has studied uh, at, at a much higher academic level than I have, mm-hmm. particularly focused on Christology. So, Tony, actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and your background with Christology and um, these doctrines and why it's so important to you? Uh, this will be one of those episodes where we do a lot less talking and. 
probably. Oh, no, no, no. So I I studied Christology um, almost by accident in seminary. So (laughs) when I was in uh, an undergraduate, I screwed up the order that I took my classes in. And I realized I got to my senior year and one of the classes I needed to graduate wasn't uh, wasn't available. So I did a sort of an independent study. And one of the things I had to do for that independent study was do uh, like a historical assessment of a of an early church figure. I just picked somebody. So I went to the library and I picked somebody and I ended up landing on Athanasius. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and I just I just fell in love with this guy's story and with his theology. And so when I, when I got to seminary, I focused my studies on the theology and biography of Athanasius. And I had the, the really amazing opportunity to study with an early patristic scholar named Don Fairbairn, who is, I think, probably the best... Genuinely evangelical voice studying um, studying early Christian history and early Christian patristic theology, and so through his courses, I really just sort of understood how central to the early Christian witness. And this seems like really obvious, right? Like, oh, the person and work of Jesus is central to Christianity. But when <laughs> when you grow up, when you come up through evangelicalism. This image you have of Jesus, um, not not in the second commandment violation way, although there's plenty of that too. Um, <laughs> yeah. This this understanding you have of Jesus is so shallow, and it's mm-hmm. so anemic, and so being confronted now with this really rich, vibrant early Christian reflection and how central to early Christian theology and early Christian development the subject of Christology really was. Um, I just realized that I, I had to get it. I had to get my head around it as much as I could. And one of the things I, I learned, um, I read Athanasius on the Incarnation, which is a pretty short read, but I read it probably thirty times over the course of my three years in oh, wow. seminary. Wow! And one of the things that I kind of discovered is actually Reformed theology in general, um, but Calvin especially is so Athanasian in a certain way. The way that Athanasius frames Christ and how Christ and his dual natures or his his double natures is probably more accurate. How he frames that and then connects it to salvation is so thoroughly reformed to sort of hmm. put that in an, anachronistically. Um, when you, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but he, yeah. he predates Chalcedon by a hundred years or so, 150 years. But the logic that he starts in about 320 that pulls through to the Chalcedonian definition, there's a straight line that goes through now to reform theology and and to Adam to Adam Christology, second Adam Christology and second Adam soteriology, mm-hmm. which I actually think, you know, obviously that's a Pauline doctrine, but that's the hallmark of reformed theology is really coming into its own in the, the understanding of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and how the first Adam and the second Adam relate to each other. If you don't get that and you don't get the Christology behind that, then the place I would point you to is actually to go back to Athanasius because Calvin was drawing on these Eastern thinkers, Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, Augustine, who was much more influenced by Athanasius than people probably realize. All of these figures Calvin's drawing on, and then that just flows straight into the theology of the Reformed confessions and the Reformed tradition, which we've been blessed to be the inheritors of. So I'm excited about this topic, and it really helps us not just kind of understand Christianity, but it helps us to combat certain kinds of errors that are perennial in the church and are, are always coming up, but seem to be really coming up a lot in recent days. Yeah. So speaking of that, what are some of the common errors you're running into now that 
would call us to turn back and say, okay, we need we need to bring back some of this Chalcedonian theology uh, to fight against. Um, what are the common things you're seeing creep up in the church, uh, in in particular for those of us uh, in the reform circles? Yeah, so Chalcedonian Christology, if you think of it like a compass, right? You guys did such a great job on your episode of talking through kind of the different compass points of it. There's There's the concept that Christ is truly God, there's the concept that Christ is truly man. So that might be like one access. And then there's there's one person and two distinct natures, and that's another access. And so any of the any Christological error is going to violate one of those by going too far from the center. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, I'm one of those people that would probably say I'm not going to name names, and then I would name names. So I'm just going to straight up name names. James White has been talking a lot um, in recent days about um, – about Christology and about theology proper. And he had a whole episode where he was trying to argue that he doesn't teach a heretical view of of kenosis. Uh, But then over the course of the episode, he straight up taught a heretical view of kenosis. (laughs) So, so that, that one is, is fresh on my mind. And and I want to unpack that a little bit because he got all up in arms and said, people were lying about him and I'm not going to pull clips or anything like that, but he said some very specific things during that episode, which are troubling. So there's that where he, he more or less, um, neglects, I don't want to say denies, that's too strong of a word, but neglects what it means for Christ to be truly God. And he sort of he sort of favors the idea that Christ is truly man, and in so doing, loses sight of what it means for Christ to be truly God. On yeah. the other side, what's more common, I think, in evangelicalism is this sort of docetic view of Christ, where Christ isn't really fully human. Mm-hmm. So so we, yeah. we think of Christ as though he's like floating along a foot off the ground, or we think of him like, uh, well, like he's Superman. You know, he's truly human, but like the same way that Clark Kent is truly human, where like he, you know, he's a human, but like (laughs) bullets are going to bounce off of him no matter what. So we lose sight of that. This might be a little bit crude, but I remember at a retreat one time, the person who was um, teaching the retreat as sort of shock value said, do you guys think Jesus pooped? And like the implied answer was no. And it was like, well, well, he, of course he doesn't because he's God and God doesn't, you know, it was this whole idea. And it was like, wait a second, he's truly human. Like Mary had to change his diapers. Yeah. Um, so those are the, those I think are the two most common axes there. And then there's all sorts of confusion about what it means for him to have two distinct natures, which ties into that kenosis, you know, error and Just, then what it means for him to be one person. There's, there's, you know, our, our, just to say I'm an equal opportunity critic, R.C. Sproul, um, you know, his his Christology had these weird latent Nestorianisms built into it where he treated Christ like he was two different people, uh, yeah. two different persons. So really it's all over the spectrum, and it's all four of those points get violated in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Just for those of us, uh, for those who are listening uh, who might not know some of these terms, obviously we highly recommend looking them up, but uh, kenosis is the act of, uh, of Christ emptying himself. Uh, sure. The self-emptying act, um, just because y- you might hear that term uh, a few times tonight, just so you know what that is. Yeah, and that comes from Philippians two, where yeah. it says he, you know, he emptied himself, um, and, and it, it's it's a misunderstood passage a sure. lot of times, um, sure. and it's it's abused. So I, I'm looking forward to kind of talking through some of these things and just sort of what I want to get at and what I think is really important is good Chalcedonian definition categories, they're not actually as complicated as people think they are. Yeah. There's there's room for variety, but they're not as 
technical and difficult as people think they are. Mm-hmm. But if we get them right, if we set up these boundaries the right way, it really protects us from kind of falling off the um, falling off the rails on these ones. Yeah. Well, that's something I appreciate that you and Jesse get into a lot. I, you know, I've been listening to you guys for a while, and you bring up this idea of like uh, systematic theology, creeds, confessions, and, and particularly when you get into things like catechisms, help to lay this grid. And you talk about it kind of, kind of a little funny, but like, um, like you get this like spidey sense of like, wait a second, yeah. this statement is wrong. I don't know why it's wrong, but because I have this theolo- this this system of theology that's cohesive, and you know, when we get into covenant theology, it's it's a marriage of biblical and systematic in understand in understanding how the Bible is unified, and I don't know why what this per I don't know why hearing this person say Jesus submits eternally to the Father by nature of being the Son bothers me, but something's wrong with that statement. Like by virtue of him being son, that's what it is. Or, or the, the Wilson quote, that's, you know, we, we've beaten this horse to death, but right. The father is authority. The son is submission. Right. Um, but these are problematic things. And these are figures that are prominent in our own circles. You know, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, uh, Doug Wilson, and even guys like Scott Oliphant, um, and John Frame are not far away from us on many other doctrines, but they're making statements. And obviously, that there we're getting more doctrine of God, but obviously, theology proper and Christology are so interconnected. And right. a lot of the, the EFS stuff is dealing with doctrine of God, but there's very heavy Christological implications um, that, are, that are problematic there. So uh, I think those are helpful things to keep in mind is that these tools, these creeds and confessions are there to aid us so that we don't all have to be scholars and go read thousands and thousands of pages, even though it's really fun to do. Like, we all enjoy that, but yeah. <laughs> we don't, like, the, the, the confessions and the catechisms are, and, the, and the creeds are pretty short by design. Like, yeah. And the answers to the, conf- to the catechisms in particular are so, um, especially the Westminster Larger, I find so robust and, he- and, and helpful here, uh, even in the way that they, they choose to order uh, their statements. But getting back to Calcedon, Justin and I were noting uh, as we were reading through Westminster and London Baptist chapter eight, just how much they lean on Calcedon um, yeah. by design, right? Um, but let's get into some of those distinctives, right? What What's happening here? Like there's that that negation, which the first time I really heard this was actually from Dr. Sproul in a, in a lecture series um, about these negations without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Uh, and the way he mentioned it, and Tony, you and I talked about this a little bit um, off the air, but Sproul had said in that lecture, like this, this creed came at a time or this definition came at a time where there were at least two different heresies that were um, pinning the church in opposite directions. And so it was written as yeah. a response to and a refutation of both. Uh, could you elaborate that a little bit more in the, in the context of Chalcedon, what was happening and why is it written with these negations that seem in some ways, if, if you didn't have the context, they seem kind of opposite and, and strange yeah. almost. Yeah, so Chalcedon really, the best way to view the definition of Chalcedon um, is as an expansion of the Christology of the Nicene Creed. So we have in 325, the first Council of Nicaea meets. They they put forward a document that's usually called the Creed of Nicaea, which is not the same thing as the Nicene Creed. Um, It's a shorter version. It's more oriented specifically towards Arianism. And then, you know, you would think that when this happens— 
And there's this definition that the church has put forward that that would settle the issue. But the Arian controversy rages on for another 50 years. And so the church comes together again in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, and they expand this creed. Uh, They go from a very short, truncated um, paragraph on Christ and a a single sentence on the Holy Spirit to now what we have as the Nicene Creed, which is much broader. But that still didn't settle all the questions in terms of the... um, the Christological questions. So the Nicene, the, the Nicene Council and the Constantinopolitan Council, or the Council of Constantinople, were primarily considered Trinitarian controversies. They were really theology of God controversies. Um, when we get to the fourth cent- or the fifth century, the four hundreds, that's where we start to f- try to wrestle through. Okay, now we've got the theology proper figured out. Now, what do we do with Christology? What do we do with this person, Jesus? And so the the first council in the, that period was the Council of Ephesus, and the more or less what happened at the Council of Ephesus was they said, well, no, the God, Christ truly has two distinct natures that are two complete, genuine, true natures. And so that that was settled there, but now there's this theology of like, okay, well, what does that mean? Is it is it you know, one nature swallows up the other? Is it that the the two natures are actually two persons? They have to figure that out. And so when you come to the Chalcedonian definition, you shouldn't just think of the immediate controversy that was going on. So it's not just about Eutyches and Nestorius. Um, It's about everything that happened during that time period, right? So Eutychianism is more or less saying that the two natures blend into a new third kind of nature, Nestorianism is that there's two persons that are kind of fused together to create one presentation of a person. But it's also all of the previous controversies and errors that the church had resisted are being kind of recapitulated and restated and refuted here. So the, the four negations are really important, but there's actually a more fundamental issue and substructure that's going on in the, the Chalcedonian definition that almost always gets missed. And this is this is a tragedy because this is actually what um, what the genius of it is. So just reading a little bit here, I'm reading the version that comes from uh, reformstandards.com. I'm not sure exactly which version this is, but they're, to, yeah. yeah, they're all more or less the same. So it says, therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge, and this is the phrase, one in the same son. So you're going to see phrases like this peppered throughout the whole thing. One in the same son, one Lord. It's emphasizing the singularity of the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's refuting against Nestorianism, right? That wants to say that there were two persons. Or sometimes it's more like there was uh, two persons in a, in a different kind of sense. But what we can think about it as though it's two complete persons, one human and then one divine kind of meshed together. Um, or in some senses, it's the divine person sort of specially adopting the the human person. There's different formulations. Um, so that theme runs throughout. And then you get to these four negations. Um, I don't have it highlighted on my screen here. I'm just finding it here. So it's without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So without confusion, this is against Eutychianism. We're not blending the two the two natures together. Sorry, Lutherans. Uh, Christ's human nature does not become ubiquitous, right? Sorry, James White. Christ's divine nature does not lack knowledge in any sense. <laughs> right? So so there's that without change, right? Again, this, this um, we have Nestorianism. We're not changing the, the divine nature in some sense by uniting it to the human nature. 
we have Eutychianism. We're not blending the two together in a way where now this, this divine nature is sort of humanized and the human nature is sort of divinized. We're not doing that. Um, kenosis is excluded because the divine nature is not lacking knowledge. Um, and then we have without distinction of natures, uh, without division. So again, contra Nestorianism, we're not taking the two natures. We're not taking the one person, dividing them up into two and without separation. So we're not, so those first two more or less are affirming that the natures stay distinct and the second ones are affirming that the, uh, the person stays united. And those are the two things, two natures, one person. And our, our confessions say that so handily in the catechisms, right? Yeah. God, uh, um, I'm not going to totally butcher this now that I don't have it in front of me. That's what we do on this the show. The son of God <laughs> became man by taking to himself a true body and a human soul. Right, but he, it also says that um, the son is and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Um, so we have to get that, and we have to sort of like lock that in our brains. And now what we have is we have that grid or that framework to bounce any theology up against to say, okay, William Lane Craig says that the the uh, <laughs> the incarnation is. Uh, the divine logos taking the place of the human soul of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, okay, what is that? Is that two whole natures? Well, no, it's not. It's not two whole natures. That's it's like one whole nature and like parts of a second nature fused together. So we got to get that grid, and if we get that, then it really does hedge us and protect us against a lot of these errors. And that's what it's designed to do, right? right. I mean, I think I think we look at some of these documents and we're we're almost like astounded. Like this was one of my big. I don't know, revelations coming into like a more robust confessional theology is we look at these, we're like, oh my goodness, these, these confessions, they protect me from so much error. And then you're like, oh, well, that's because that's exactly what they were designed to do <laughs> yeah. is to protect us from error. That's it. Yeah. Somebody else has to talk because I got to take a breath. Good, good, good. Uh, yeah, I think, I think those are really helpful. And Tony, so a little bit of backdrop. Um, when I was coming out of Unitarianism and like making those moves and starting to really confess with the Church Catholic, the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, Tony was, we were speaking a couple of times going through passages that people from my old background would bring up and say, well, what about this? And Tony, um, and I would walk through some of that. And then we also come back to these creeds and say, okay, well, look, why, why did the Church why did the church insist and confess these things? And um, there's a passage from Bavink. I won't pull it up right now because I've read it at least three times on the podcast. But it's, <laughs> it's from, uh, I think it's from the first volume of the Dogmatics where he talks about, um, he's, or no, no, it's the second volume. Um, he talks about uh, the Socinian Biblicists who say, well, you're using extra biblical language. And, and people still do this today, not just Unitarians. I mean, this is in our evangelical circles and in fundamentalist circles. Where you're using extra biblical language uh, and you're introducing things. And Bavink's point is like, well, no, orthodox, like Christian orthodoxy has always used extra words to articulate and, and explain what the Bible's teaching. Like this is just, this is just a thing Christians do. Yeah. And the, the existence of these things is just saying, yeah, theology has a right to exist as a discipline. <laughs> like, the, this yeah. isn't crazy. And so that was really helpful for me and even more mind-blowing to come out of where I came from and to see these documents that are so robust and simple um, and yet extraordinarily precise. Like, this is razor sharp. There's no... Yeah. Um, 
you know, as you said, it, it's not necessarily super technical, but it is sharp, it is clear, and it gives us those guide rails to keep us out of error. And and, and yeah, it makes me t- uh, cringe when I see people in reformed and and you know maybe reformed adjacent or uh, five point yeah. Calvinistic soteriology and whatever on the rest of their doctrines make statements. That I'm just like, what are you doing? Like you were sounding like the people that you're sounding like the kinds of statements I made as a Unitarian. I won't put that on anyone else. I'll, I'll take, I'll own that one. You're, you're making the same kinds of statements that I used when I would argue fallaciously against what what Trinitarian theology is and Orthodox Christology, but you're still claiming to be Orthodox. Well, it's interesting how how downplayed this gets, considering how significant these doctrines are. I mean, I, I, we talked about this earlier in, in the previous episode. Um, what we what we come up with as far as is who we how we understand who Christ is, uh, just being slightly wrong can lead you in, in, into a, a damnable heresy, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people believe in Jesus, but Mormons believe in Jesus, Muslims believe in Jesus, right? Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Uh, I mean, there's atheists who believe in Jesus, right? But what, what do you mean when you say that? What do you mean when you believe in Jesus? Who is Jesus? What was Jesus? Right? Um, e- even the slightest uh, error, it could be non-selfific, but a lot of times it really could uh, could send you to hell. And so it's tremendously important. Um, and so it makes sense that they were so precise uh, in dealing with, with these doctrines, historically speaking, and that there would be such an emphasis on it because it is tremendously important as far as our salvation goes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, where it surprises me when I see figures who really should know better. Yeah. Right. So, again, I I don't I don't have any desire to have like a flame war with James White or Owen Strahan or or Scott Oliphant or any any of those guys that I've been critical of or that we've been critical of. Sure. But you see some of these statements and you kind of actually like scratch your head a little bit because. James White is very quick to be like, well, I taught church history. I know this stuff. But then you, you, you listen to what he says. You're like, but did you actually read the council? Like, did you actually read the definition of Chalcedon when you were teaching church history? Because if you did, this stuff is so quickly excluded. So just real quick, um, he did an episode. I don't remember when it was released, but it was called Philippians to the Carmen Christian accusations of canonic heresy. So, uh, a brother of ours who's on the Society of Reform Network, or Reform Podcasters, um, Josh Summer does Baptist broadcast, sharp dude. He, he first of all, did not explicitly accuse, he didn't call James White a heretic. He specifically said he wasn't. But he pointed out some, some entailments in Dr. White's thinking that leads to this. And so this is this was the episode. Uh, you, if you listen at about the fifty-six minute mark, is when this starts to come in. And here's here's the full quote. I use some transcription software, so I think I got it right. But here's the full quote. He says, "So for a purpose, this is him." Quote, so for a purpose and for a time, there's a veiling of the glory. And in the same way, you then have the very difficult, challenging text where Jesus says that only the Father, not the Son, nor the angels in heaven. No man knows the day, the hour, only the Father in heaven. And, you know, you could understand that as some people have understood that as being only in reference to the human nature, I suppose. End quote. Now, just a quick pause. Those some people he's talking to, John Calvin, Athanasius, you know, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, Augustine, the Cappadocian Fathers, 
all of the Reformed confessions, Francis Turretin, <laughs> the entire Roman Catholic tradition, like Eastern Orthodoxy, like literally everybody in Christianity that wasn't considered a heretic is who falls under that some, some people. So, so picking it up again real quick, um, he says, I suppose, but I think it follows very much along the lines of what we just discussed. Yeah. There are certain yeah. aspects of the glory of the sun that are veiled during the incarnation. And so at that point in the time, in the incarnate state, it's not that the son did not know before the incarnation and would not know at his exaltation or anything like that, but that there was some reason why at that point in time it was profitable for the Messiah, the son not to know, right? So he's saying that the son, not just according to his human nature, because he's kind of putting himself outside of that group of some people, right? The son actually did not know in any sense, so he's, he's importing that to the whole person, not localizing it in one person or the other. And then this is the thing that just astounds me. And this is where I think he's sort of verging into this Socinian, Socinianizing tendencies that, um, that people in this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it like the Grace Baptist school of thought, are, are going him and Owen Strahan, Bruce Ware. Here's Justin, what he says. come get this your people. Just, those aren't my Baptists. <laughs> this is just this was just astounding to me, and this is where you kind of you scratch your head and go, "Did you actually read any of the documents you claim you're teaching in church history?" He says, um, "Those are his words. You've got to deal with them. You can you you can't if you have to look up the word, look at the words written by Matthew, and come up with an interpretation that could not possibly been what Matthew intended, or anyone Matthew wrote to intended, or could not have been known for centuries, millennia after the point of writing. You're no longer dealing with the scripture being any kind of meaningful foundation for our belief, right? So first of all, Mister Church History Teacher, the Council of Chalcedon was not millennia after. Matthew wrote his gospel. We're talking a couple hundred years, maybe. But what he literally is saying is that the theology of the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian definition, the theology that we're talking about that's been settled orthodoxy, that was represented in the documents before Chalcedon, well before Chalcedon, in as early as Irenaeus, we see this two Adam, two nature Christology, and he's pointed that out. He's saying that that could not have been what Matthew had in mind. It could not have been what Matthew... So he's literally saying, like, this is not a biblical teaching. This is not what the biblical writers thought about when they brought up Christology. So I, I just don't know what to do with that except to be like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like, what's wrong with you people? We need that sound clip. Yeah, we need that. Point. I don't have it on. I don't have it on tap. But uh, and I don't. I don't. I don't bring this up just to like rail on James White. Yeah. He's just the most recent example of someone who has sort of dis disregarded the historic Christian tradition and these wonderful, amazing, well thought out, well reasoned, well scripturally supported biblical doctrines. Yeah. That he's just sort of disregarding <clears throat> them for reasons. I don't even really know what. I don't really fully understand what the reasons are most of the right. time. And now he's sliding into all sorts of weird positions that do verge on heretical teaching if they don't all the way flow over into them. So, so this is just one example where getting your Christology right and really spending the time to understand these Chalcedonian definition categories, it really helps you as you read through scripture to understand. And, and hear me really clearly. I'm not saying we read scripture through the lens of Chalcedon. Right. I know there's been controversy about that. I know that that's actually something that Josh Summers has said. Uh, at least I think he said, I've heard James White say he said it, which probably means he didn't say it. But that's not what I'm trying to advocate. The scripture is the final word. It's the only thing we need. And what I'm saying is if you read scripture carefully, 
with with an attention to what the writers are actually doing, you come up with Chalcedonian Christology. Chalcedonian Christology is the biblical teaching, right? Just take that Spurgeon quote that Calvinism is just a nickname for biblical theology. Well, Chalcedon is just a nickname for biblical Christology. So when we start to see people depart from that, I'm not so much concerned that James White's disregarding some definition that came 450 years after, you know, after Christ was born. I'm Mm -hmm. concerned because he's disregarding the Christology that the Bible teaches, and I think clearly teaches. Well, it reminds me of the Spurgeon. You mentioned Spurgeon. It reminded me of his other quote about discernment, right? That discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're at with this. Yeah. Well, I, I lied. I'm, I'm going to pull the quote from Bob Inc. Or one of the other ones. So this is <laughs> this is Reformed Dogmatics. This is page 295. This is not the exact quote I had in mind, though. This is a separate quote. So he's talking about people that are opposing the doctrine of the Trinity. And in his context, he's speaking specifically about her- ancient heresies. Um, but I think this line resonates with some of the things we are running into here. Um, as Tony's mentioned, this like Socinianizing biblicism that is starting to creep in in our circles. And with the preface, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Tony's saying. The Bible is the final soul authority. And if we read it carefully, we come to the same conclusions here of those who went before us and prayed and faithfully worked through this. But Bavink writes... Averse to metaphysics, which they regard as valueless and even detrimental to the life of faith, they, they decline to infer the existence of, of imminent ontological relations in the divine being from God's self-revelation in Christ and from his self-communication in the Holy Spirit. They refuse to accept the theological elements that are contained not only in the doctrine of the church, but also undoubtedly in the teaching of scripture, and attempt to paint them as useless speculation. Now again, he's speaking specifically about ancient heresy, but I think in our contemporary age, I've seen this tendency, and we're seeing it I think here with, you know, to say some people, <laughs> and and the <laughs> list of people that are, that are espousing that position is large and Catholic and spanning literal millennia. You know, you're not talking about Josh Summer and Richard Barcelos and Tony Arsenal and Justin Van Riper on Twitter. Like, you're not talking about some dudes on Twitter. You're talking right. about giants in church history who who have handed down to us faithfully doctrine, mind out of scripture. Um. And it's just astounding to me. I, I was also thinking as you're reading that, uh, Tony, the like, I know the, the London Baptist has a very similar uh, article, but Westminster Chapter 8, Article 7, I feel like this just kind of answers that entire quote that you read. It reads, Christ, yeah. in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing what is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And that is that, yeah, we, we see this kind of explanation because we're talking about one person with two natures. And there seems to be this kind of overlap. And I think the the danger sometimes we can run into is to overthink it and try to over say, is this the divine? Is this the human? But at the same time, there's like um, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience are divine attributes and uh, having to sleep and eat and getting tired are human nature attributes. That's not overthinking it. But I think uh, the, the questions that White is wrestling with, I feel like his own, well, I don't know if he's technically calls himself a 1689 or anymore, but like 
That's right in your confession, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, and, and yeah, I don't want to speculate. I, I I try hard not to speculate too much about how sure. this figure or that figure got to where they are because I I don't think that that's terribly fruitful and we. we we can't see inside his thought process or his motivations, sure. but what we can see is that the words that he's saying, the things that are coming out of his mouth um, are, are contrary to the confession that he, at least historically has said he holds to and are contrary to the creedal definitions and confessional definitions that reformed folk and Christians as a whole have recognized for, for literally a thousand, you know, 1500 years now as solid, accurate, faithful, useful, profitable interpretations of scripture, right? That's what a confession is. It's an interpretation of scripture. And so it's, it's in my mind, it's, it's hard to see this happen because these are people that we've trusted. They're people that we have come to. In some senses, this is the weirdest thing about this. Some of this theology I learned from James White. Right? Mm-hmm. I remember listening to his early his his Christian history lectures when he went through them. He published them at Phoenix Reformed uh, Baptist Church or whatever it was called. He taught church history, and I remember the lecture on the Chalcedonian definition. I remember thinking how good his explanations were. So there's there's these weird these weird movements now in certain quarters of particularly Reformed Baptists. No offense, Justin, it's not you. It's 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 not you. It's them. I don't know well, what to say about it. Uh, but there's these yeah, weird ahead. movements away from sound orthodox teaching and I don't yeah. I don't even fully understand the reasons. And again, this isn't just a bash on particular group of people. Right. This is to say like it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you teach at a reformed seminary or not. It doesn't matter whether you're an elder at a reformed Baptist church or a Presbyterian church. It doesn't matter if you are a, a famous Twitter warrior who's known for the culture wars with a slightly reformed bent, Owen Strahan. <coughs> um, it doesn't matter who you are. If you don't protect yourself by understanding the scripture and understanding where this stuff comes from and allowing the church's historic statements that have have been tested in the fires of heresy, they've been tested in the fire of the battle of heresy. If you don't let that protect you, you're going to you're going to slide off the rails into these weird positions. Well, that's my frustration with a lot of the Baptists right now, right? It's so many of them. Like, I understand that uh, you and Blake would disagree, uh, obviously, with even uh, uh, more historic Baptists or 1689 Federalists. But I, I'm getting frustrated with the with the group of quote unquote Reformed Baptists that are straying from what Reformed Baptist theology has always been. Right? right? They're they're going into this this sort of weird neo Reformed Baptist area. And yeah. they're coming up with these weird theologies, and and he's one of those folks that I would say is doing that, right? They're they're calling themselves Reformed Baptists because they don't believe in paedo baptism, but being a Baptist means more than being a credo Baptist, right? Yeah. Historically speaking, being a uh, a particular Baptist or a, a Federalist that has that has more historic roots to it, and and we would agree on on these obviously very important doctrines on Christology. That's not one of our areas of disagreement, and so I don't know why they're jumping in that into those pools. Yeah, it's odd to me as well because the 1689 in some ways I think the the expansions that it does make particularly around the the, the framing of statements in the doctrine of God and and Christology I think are very good, they're very helpful. Uh, if yeah. anything I'm like I think that they they it, it, it's the few areas I will grant okay maybe they maybe they improved on the Westminster uh, is where they 
elaborated a little bit more on the doctrine of God or brought a little bit more of that Chalcedonian uh, flavor into the, some of the statements that they wrote, where, where when a little, you know, the, the paragraphs go a little longer than in Westminster. And, and I think that's very good. I think that's why guys like Sam Renahan, Richard Barcelos, uh, and others from that camp have started to get so robust in their doctrine of God and their doctrine of Christ because they went back to their confession and they said, whoa, wait a second, where has this been? Um, what have we done with this? And yeah, so it, it is odd. And, and not to let the Presby's off the hook, like we definitely have some guys who were Westminster professors and, and graduates who were writing just strange things. And, and, they've, and I don't want to say that without saying, I think they're faithful. I think they're, they're brothers in the Lord. I think they have done a lot for the church, and I think they've written a lot of very useful things, but then they they make statements about God taking on properties that are not part yeah. and parcel of who God is yeah. in order to interact with the world. Like I, I think that's, a, is that Framer Alifani was trying to use the the mechanism of like the way the incarnation is of of, at, of taking on a human nature without changing divinity, but then yeah. there's no like scriptural basis to apply that to God taking on properties that are not divine. Because is, is it and Dolezal nails this home in his book, and and when we interviewed him, is this creature or is this creator? And there is no middle thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and if we're talking about an attribute being added to God that's not divine, then we're saying something that is not God is now a part of God. Like it just doesn't work. Um, but it's 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 sad to see some of these things happen, especially with people who are so good in many other areas. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that's the really important thing. And this is what I think most people miss when they're talking about how the incarnation functions. And th this is going to get a little technical, Do it. but bear with me. So so when we're talking about the incarnation, we're not talking about the union of two natures. And that sounds sounds really weird, but bear with me here. People think of the incarnation as though you're taking two natures and you're kind of mashing them together. And, and what comes out is like the person of Jesus Christ. But what you have in the incarnation is actually a full, complete, a full, complete divine nature in the person of, of the son. You're starting with a person, right? We're not starting with nothing and then like, it's not a recipe. We're not putting two things together to create something. You have the divine person already. The divine person of the son is complete in himself in eternity past for all eternity with no admission of change, no, no, you know, composition, nothing. All of the things that we talk about with the divine. When we add that human nature to it, we're not uniting that human nature directly to the divine nature. Because if we did that, then what we'd end up doing is we'd be incarnating the Father and the Spirit too, right? Because right. if we're if we're uniting a human nature to the divine nature per se in itself, we're actually would be incarnating the whole Trinity because there's only one nature in the Trinity. Instead, what happens is this divine person who is the divine nature takes into himself and attaches to his person, not to his nature. And I know divine simplicity makes that weird. That's a different subject. But he attaches to his person a second nature, a human nature. And that's why we call it the hypostatic union. It's not the union of two natures in, in and of themselves. It's the union of two natures in the person of the son. And so the son as a person has all of the attributes of the divine nature and all of the attributes of the human nature, but the divine nature stays distinct and separate from the human nature because the, the, the attributes are communicated to the person of Christ, not to the other nature. 
And so that's where a lot of these a lot of these things are going sideways, right? Um, Oliphant in his covenantal properties thesis, which he he sort of has repudiated. Um, it's not quite as forceful as most of us who are familiar with the controversy would have liked. But he, to be fair, he has stated that he no longer holds it. He repudiates it. He published through Westminster a series of denials that made it pretty clear that he was rejecting his other view. But again, not as forcefully as, as we would have liked. But what he did is he made it so you could still have that same mechanism, this union of new attributes to God, but you were missing a second nature. Right? You didn't right. have like a second nature being added to God, to added to the Father particularly. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have like this second nature being united to a person. So he was trying to say, well, in the hypostatic union, these attributes are slammed together, but they don't get confused. But he was missing the fact that in the hypostatic union, that's because the natures are the, the attributes are communicated to the persons, not to the natures. That wasn't present in that. So even that, even though that's a theology proper debate understanding Christology, or in his case, misunderstanding Christology, was what caused him to be able to do that. He didn't understand, or at least he didn't seem to understand, that the the union of the natures in the person and the attributes communicating to the person is what made the incarnation work. Because when he tried to now take that and map it over to the divine nature and to, to not an incarnation, he missed that part of it altogether. And he ended up basically just making the father into a mutable substance that could add attributes to himself, um, which is what he, you know, he ended up repeating that again. Um, yeah. the, the document is available online. You can find it, but it was a, it was a stupid mistake. I mean, not, not to be too, um, too pejorative, but we would expect scholars of his caliber to know better, right? We would expect scholars like John frame, who's been teaching in reform circles for decades, longer than most of us. I mean, longer than Blake has been alive longer yeah, than I think sure. I've been alive. I think longer than Justin's been alive. I don't, I mean, he's been <laughs> teaching for decades and decades and decades in reform yeah. circles yet still, he just makes these seemingly amateur mistakes that a simple, straightforward reading and application of the Chalcedonian definition would protect us from. I think it's almost like sometimes these figures get too, I don't know, this is going to sound really, really, really like arrogant. They get too smart for their own good. Like they, they have to try to improve on what there was before. And I'm just sitting here like, why? Like, why improve on this? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's good enough as it is. We haven't had to make modifications to it for 1,500 years. Why all of a sudden do we feel like we have to outgrow the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition? It's just, it's just dumb. There it yeah. is. There's yeah. our statement. You know, it's funny when we interviewed James Dulles all about classical theism for like almost two hours long. Um, at the end of it, he's like, hey, by the way, I have a paper, which which I, I downloaded and I haven't read yet because it's like 25, 30 pages. Um, but he's specifically dealing with that question of classical theism and uh, the hypostatic union. And how does this not violate that? And uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. I mean, the first, the, the introductory page alone has citations from Augustine, Cyril of Alexandria, John of Damascus, and Aquinas. So... Uh, you know it's gonna be it's gonna be lit, um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I brought up those guys specifically um, because of their theology proper differences, uh, but also to say you know it's not just we're not just ragging on Baptists here. Like this happens in Presbyterian circles, and I think Tony brought out the good point there. I, I, again, even if said maybe a bit, uh, yeah. maybe that's a crass way to put it, but we don't outgrow the need of guardrails or of like theological aids and 
I don't think that I am smarter than the Westminster Assembly and the Council of Chalcedon and the Council of Constantinople. Like, I, I don't think that I'm smarter than all of these faithful ministers and theologians who were yeah. praying through and wrestling through these things. And then everybody after them who has said, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And again, that doesn't that doesn't mean that I can't wrestle with that and, and, and reckon and say I don't understand, but to just reject it out of hand or just not be careful, you know, it's like, uh, I think in many ways, the kid who's grown up with the catechisms could avoid some of these problems better than some of these guys with, with these degrees because the kid doesn't think that they know it all, but they're like, well, but this is, you know, I've read my Bible and I, I, I you know, I've learned my shorter catechism and... I don't under like, what do you mean? God is taking yeah. on properties. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me. We, we live in a day and age. It's kind of ironic. We have all the knowledge in the world at our fingertips oh. and, and yet the church seems dumber than ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's and, a worldwide problem though. I don't know if that's just the yeah. church. Yeah. 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 So, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so speaking of that, how can we as a church, uh, if someone's interested in learning more about this, right, and, and, and preventing falling into some of these errors, how can we as a church um, accommodate that, right? What can churches be doing in order to better uh, prevent this kind of error? And what can the individual do uh, as far as um, where they might be able to, like, start looking into something, uh, some some more of this doctrine, some more of this theology, this Chalcedonian theology? Yeah, well, um, I think the biggest thing is that the pastors of the church just need to like do their job. Like, I, I mean, I, I know that's kind of like a little bit of a slap, but for so long, the Christian church in America particularly um, has spent most of the preaching ministry like peddling like truisms and platitudes and trying to teach us how to like feel better about ourselves and how to like manage our money better and have better sex. And, and we just haven't, the pastors of the church and I would actually, I'm not a pastor, but I am an elder in my local church. I would actually include myself in this call to action is we have to teach theology from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. The Bible teaches theology, so we should not shy away from it when we are preaching the scriptures from teaching theology. So when we come to Acts 20 and it talks about how God bought the church with his own blood, we should take a minute and talk about Chalcedonian definition and about the, the categories that allow us to say that God bought the church with his blood. Right? God doesn't have blood, so how do we reconcile that? Or Christmas is a great time to talk about it. Is Mary the mother of God? Absolutely 100% yes. I don't care what R.C. Sproul says. Right? So, so we, have to, we have to take those opportunities, and it has to come from the pulpit first. But I think from the, from the pew, there's so many good resources out there that are approachable. I often get asked, like, what's the, what's the best entry-level systematic theology? And I kind of flip that question around, like, why are we just peddling the entry-level systematic theology? I know, oh, like, it's hard. I know it's tough work. But there's a lot of helps out there. And there's a lot of people who want to help you walk through that stuff. Yeah. So, like, read the Institutes of the Christian Movement. You can get it for free online. It's absolutely free. You can get it, no problem. Um, Calvin is amazing on this. He's really good on this. I just want to read this real quick. This is out of um, Institutes. I'm too lazy to look up the actual reference. But he says here... Um, by the communicating of characteristics or properties consists in what Paul said, 
God purchased the church with his blood and the Lord of glory was crucified. John says the same, the word of life was handled. Surely God does not have blood, does not suffer, cannot be touched with hands. But since Christ, who was true God and also true man, was crucified and shed his blood for us, the things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred improperly, although not without reason to his divinity. Here is a similar example. John teaches that God laid down his life for us. Accordingly, there also a property of humanity is shared with the other nature. Again, when Christ, still living on the earth, said, No one has ascended to heaven but the Son of Man who was in heaven, surely then as man in the flesh that he had taken upon himself, he was not in heaven. But because the selfsame one was both God and man, for the sake of the union of both natures, he gave to the one what belonged to the other. So that is just a straight up exposition of five or six different verses in the scripture that pose this question to us. Right, Calvin exposits this. This is the exact same logic that we see in Westminster and uh, eight seven and the accompanying um, passage in the London Baptist. And this is the logic of Chalcedon, and it's all coming out of these passages in Scripture. So I think that the average layperson probably feels like oh, I can't read Calvin. Yeah, that's a little bit difficult. But I don't think there's any adult reader who's interested in theology that couldn't work through that passage slowly and understand what it means. So just a little bit of a plug. We're going to be starting a book club on uh, Reformed Brotherhood. If you you join our Telegram chat, well, yeah, if you join our Telegram chat, we're doing, uh, it's t.me slash Reformed Brotherhood. We're going to work through on the incarnation together, starting here in uh, the end of uh, of June, beginning of July. We're going to go through August. And I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do it, but we've got a separate Telegram chat for it. So at the very least, we're going to all read it together and talk about it. We might set up some like video chats or some um, club house meetings. Maybe we'll do some like, uh, I don't know, like email threads or something. But this is this is how we have to handle it. People who have access to the information, either because they studied it themselves, they're a well-read layperson, they're a pastor, um, they're a, a professional theologian, they're an academic, or whatever it is, you listen to a lot of podcasts and you just know this stuff because you've studied it. We have to be willing and able to find venues to share it with other people. Because th- the church is going to hear about this stuff from someone, and a lot of the sources that we have sort of let them hear it from have not been doing a very good job of teaching it well. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I, I agree with that. I think, um, like, yeah, go do some of the difficult—I mean, I, on the one hand, like the the ESV Creeds and Confessions edition— is so handy. Uh, or I think Crossway just put out a thing that's just creeds and confessions in a hardback that I, I kind of want to get. Um, like you could just, just read, if you've never done it, just read the Nicene Creed, read, read the Apostles' Creed, read the Chalcedonian definition, and then read your reform standards. Um, it doesn't take that long. I think I read through the London Baptist, the Westminster, the Heidelberg Catechism in a summer, and I was taking my time. Like you can get through them relatively quickly without, and, and, I was amazed finding, wow, like every chapter, I'm like, oh, this is so clear. Oh, this is so helpful. Um, and it was just, it was just awesome. Um, but yeah, that, that was good. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, Tony. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Blake, it was my pleasure. Thanks for letting me join you guys on your show. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-huh.